This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. We are still in the grip of COVID-19 and in the cold confines of a lockdown. And we know that it's hard to look beyond the present, but there will definitely be a post-coronavirus world. And it is taking shape right now, presenting us with critical choices. Do we go back to what we had as best that we can? Or do we seize the opportunity to shape a new a more inclusive society and a more sustainable and equitable world? Welcome to Beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. This is brought to you by Kaya FM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. In this episode, we are going to be focusing on a very topical and a critical issue in South Africa for a long time. And this is the issue of xenophobia and migration. And we'll really be talking about what it means in the context of where we've been, what it means in the context of where we are with the pandemic, and of course, what might happen next. So I've got two guests who are obviously very well versed in talking about matters of this nature. And this is Bishop Foster and Dr. Paul Carrigan. Good evening, gentlemen. Good day. Good day to you. Now, Bishop, I'd like to start with you. We do know that historically South Africa has had a terrible history with instances of xenophobia, for example, having fled up not too long ago. And I suspect a lot of your people are going to say that the type of issues that led to that initial outbreak are probably the type of the issues that we haven't fixed as a country. There are issues that are persistent in nature and there are issues that are very systemic. And I suspect that this particular pandemic can only worsen those existing fracture points. Just take us back to when we were in 2008, for example, when we really saw the first real big outbreak of xenophobic violence in South Africa. What were the big trigger points back then? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Good morning. Yes, yeah. The I mean, the main triggers again were, you know, competition over limited resources. You know, and I think that that was because you have poor people in a sense at the bottom end, who suddenly see people moving into their spaces where they usually make uh, some kind of income uh, in terms of survival economics, and uh, so when that happens, there's there's competition. And uh, and also it's then compounded if it's somebody from another another country and also a country that you don't fully understand you don't understand the language etc. So then there's a reaction, and uh, that broadly would be uh, some of the causes. It's the socioeconomic sort of causes uh, for it. Then it's exacerbated by uh, people playing into the sort of uh, ethnic identities of everybody. You know, for instance, um, you know we never had crime in this area and it, crime has only come since certain uh, African groups have come into our area. So there's the stereotypes, you know, that, uh, um, and so then we, people get angry because people in a sense are, are not seeing that they're beginning to see that the, the, the delivery that was made for them, they begin to perceive is now beginning to, the resources are now beginning, beginning to go elsewhere uh, to, 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 to the, the African sort of compatriots as it were. And so, so, you know, broadly speaking, that, that would be something of the, uh, of the causes as it were, because you, you have, you have people from other, other countries who are working in other economic spaces, but you don't have the same reaction. Uh, because uh, there's not the high competition over the limited resources. So I would say that that's one of the key triggers to uh, a lot of um, uh, a lot of the, 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 the xenophobic attacks, as it were. Then it's translated into 
into actually stereotyping people and saying and blaming it on the foreigners. They're the ones who are taking away the jobs. They're the ones who, who are causing all the crime. They're the ones that, et cetera, you know, as it were. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Bishop. Uh, Dr. Paul, I mean, some of the things that the Bishop mentions are things that some of us might know are probably inaccurate. So people simply saying that the foreigners are to blame for everything that's going wrong. Surely the role of education and really enabling people to understand what really the dynamics are could be the type of thing or the type of intervention that would assist. Is this something that has happened? Have we learned anything from 2008 or do we still simply let people foster with their own um, misconceptions about really the role of foreigners and perhaps what the allocation of resources is? Or do we see perhaps there's been a better education around these issues for people on the ground? Well, um, I think it's, um, it's an ongoing work. Um, we understand from, from, from the episode that happened in 2008, even as uh, Bishop has correctly uh, pointed out, is that um, the, the, the issue of resources always at the center of xenophobic attacks or xenophobic conflict. And um, I think for, 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 for us to see a sustainable change uh, in terms of the way um, the relationship between African migrants, particularly, and uh, South African hosts, it will be a continuous work around, uh, firstly, information to influence the mindset change, uh, and secondly, to, to continue conscientizing each other uh, the importance of observing um, uh, human rights, uh, and especially in this case, protection of people's livelihoods, because that's what it always boils down to. So I think work has been done since 2008 by different agencies, civil society, uh, Chapter 9 institutions, and other uh, agencies that are involved in this kind of work. However, the work ca cannot stop. It has to continue because the triggers are always there. The triggers are, number one, competition for resources, and number two, the challenges of uh, uh, difficulties of making a living every day. Um, and the, the, the challenge that creates these uh, sort of attacks abruptly is when um, these tensions are taken up from a political point of view uh, to make look like it is the African migrants that are really causing the problem. And there could be elements of criminality here and there. But that's not the bigger picture. The bigger picture is there that when there is skewed development that does not meet the aspirations of ordinary citizens right in their own local communities, African migrants often become the, the easiest target because they seemingly, in the eyes of their hosts in the communities, seem to be earning a living and seem to be doing something that brings them income, while majority of their surrounding neighbors in their communities where they, they, they operate their businesses, uh, in this case, seem to be not be making a, a headway economically. So the idea of conscientization and education is important so that also there is um, on one part understanding the reasons why uh, migration does happen in the broader scheme of things. And number two, the reason why African migrants are in those communities and on the African migrants part of it is to start even con contemplating ideas like transference of skills. They, they come into this country with a range, broad range of skills, entrepreneurial and professional. And there is a way a mechanism should be created where there is an exchange of skills so that 
members of, 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 of communities do not see them as depleters, if I may use that word sparingly, of their resources in their own communities, but also uh, partners in their own local economic development of their own community. But there should be an exchange of skills so that it becomes part of harmonizing relationships towards peace, peace building and peace sustenance. Yeah, and I think, uh, Dr. Paul, you raised some very important points, though, but I think one element of this that I'd like to explore a bit further is that we know we say that African migrants become the target, but one then has to question if the issue is really foreigners in general are crowding us out and taking our jobs, at least from the perspective of some people. Why would then it have an acute impact when those foreigners are black rather than saying that we have a position or we have issues against foreigners at large? And my suspicion is that perhaps most of these tension points happen to occur at what you might call the lower end of the economic spectrum or the lower end of the economic ladder, where, of course, it just turns out that a lot of the migrants, whether they're African or from other parts of the world, that do try to seek opportunities, they happen to be black. I mean, I've never heard of a white migrant who is uh, being allocated a job in a high-rise building in Centin, for example, being subjected to these types of issues. Is there still a lot of us to explore around how people People perceive migrants versus black migrants? That's a very interesting uh, trajectory. And again, we cannot um, hide our heads in the sand like the proverbial ostrich um, and assume that these things do not exist. Um, we have seen that whenever there is a flare up of any xenophobic attacks, it's usually uh, against African black migrants. And correctly, as you pointed, we've never seen other migrants from other, uh, you know, outside of the continent being targeted. So these days, there's definitely a serious issue around Afrophobia around there. And that also is a dimension that needs to be explored further and be, um, you know, be addressed. And really one of the issues, again, as I said, that the resentment is always about resources. And the, the, the feeling of um, other African who look like us seem to be doing well in a, in the same situation we are in. We still have a lot in order to learn about just perhaps xenophobia in general and the distinction between xenophobia and Afrophobia because I think there is definitely a lot of evidence that indicates that most of these xenophobic attacks tend to be targeted towards black migrants and black foreigners. And of course, there's no reason to believe that only black migrants and black foreigners ever end up in South Africa. There are migrants and foreigners of all persuasions and of all racial and ethnicities. And yet, when we speak about xenophobia, the pictures that we see and the evidence that we see seems to be what you may refer to as targeted on black um, migrants and indeed uh, people from uh, foreign lands. What's your view on that? I think the racial dimension um, of, of xenophobic attacks becomes more real when there is insufficient knowledge and understanding why migration in the first place takes place, and number two, why are migrants in the country in the, in the second place. And I think until that is, a, is, is, is well communicated across the public in a way that it does distinguish between the reasons for why people migrate, because migration is a global phenomenon and it didn't start yesterday. It will continue. People will always be moving from one place to another, from one country to another. But there has to be an understanding, why do people move? And then secondly, trying to, to address the real core of the issue. The core of the issue here is competition for resources, access to economic opportunities. And what really creates the resentment 
that ultimately results into um, into violence is the fact that some African migrants come in with already skills that they are able to explore opportunities to earn a living, make a livelihood. They they don't wait back. The conditions that they find themselves in do not allow them to sit back and wait for things to be delivered into their hands. So that ability to exercise some entrepreneurial um, uh, um, agency on their part becomes a core issue of straining relationships between them and their South African hosts in whichever communities they find themselves in. So I think there's a lot of uh, education needs to be done here in massive public education selecting the place. And secondly, how can we mitigate um, uh, the, the issue of exchange transfer of skills between African migrants and their local South African hosts? And this is where there is a multi-pronged uh, approach that needs to be implemented. So it's civil society collaborating with department, government of departments that are relevant to this work versus uh, chapter nine institutions versus organized uh, migrant formations. And at the same time, uh, also organized community-based uh, local economic development committees or structures where majority of migrant uh, African migrants do conduct their business operations. This is very important if the issue of xenophobia and Afrophobic tendencies that always tend to, to, to become violent will be addressed to a place where there is peaceful existence between the two, um, between the two groups. And, and of course, then address the bigger issue around why is xenophobic attacks always targeted towards African migrants, but not members of other race groups from the outside of the continent. Then there must be an issue going on there that needs to be debunked. And, there, and, and I think we have not gotten to a place of having that courageous conversation uh, among us itself as a society, but also among us, uh, the two migrant uh, communities. Why is it that it's often targeted towards African migrant business entrepreneurs? That conversation needs to be happening, and it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, definitely. Afropolitans, we are discussing Beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. This is a podcast brought to you by KSM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. And the focus of our conversation today is on xenophobia and migration. I'm speaking to Bishop Foster and Dr. Paul Kariukin, who are giving us some insights. And so far, we've been looking particularly at the issue of the historical context of xenophobia in South Africa. And I think the Bishop and Dr. Paul do highlight that, you know, at the end, it's probably more about a competition of resources and we know that when scarcity is the reality then that type of competition does have very very high tension points bishop i mean dr paul karikishia talks about this particular utopia where we can perhaps get everybody across the table to understand where they come from to understand what resources each group has and to understand that how a transfer of resource can be done but i suspect that we live in a country where there are so many other competing priorities for our politicians in particular, a conversation of that nature is not something that is going to emerge organically from the political leadership. It probably needs a, a, or requires a very different take or a different approach. What is it that we can put together to actually say, let us bypass the politicians, if I may put it like that, and say, let us do things in a way that actually deals with the issue that is so well understood. We can discuss it 12 years later, but also acknowledge that it might happen simply because not much has been done to fix it. 
Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, just to remind us that uh, there was a major outbreak in 2015. And um, I remember that uh, those of us who were um, involved with the, the 2015 outbreak of xenophobic uh, violence, we, we, we reflected on the 2008 outbreak and said, what often happens is that people respond emotionally to a crisis. And then you get all sorts of groups that are set up and they only last for a few months there afterwards and they fizzle out once, once the sort of main uh, climax of the violence dies down. But the issues don't, don't go. In 2015, we said, no, we've got to continue regardless. You know, even if it feels as though there's, 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 no, there's no violence, we've still got to continue because the underlying causes have not been addressed. So you might recall that the uh, the premier at the time um, uh, commissioned a a special reference group on migration and uh, community integration in KwaZulu Natal, and they they produced a uh, a very comprehensive study of the causes of of violence and also some of the the, uh, the suggested ways forward. And one of the major suggested uh, suggested ways forward was obviously to address the economic issue, but also the the, the uh, improvement of better understanding between our African compatriots and, and, and our local folk, because many, many, many of us uh, South Africans, because of the isolation years, we were cut off from the rest of Africa. And so we, we, we don't fully understand um, what some of the, the historical um, uh, uh, um, impacts of violence has been in different countries, like the DRC, for instance. Where you know from about uh, ninety seven they had two major wars, and there were like five million people that lost their lives and uh, and there, there are many of our people who don't actually even know that and uh, and we we've had some groups where we sat down with with uh, some local folk and some some folk from other parts of Africa, and when they began to speak about their experiences and histories, both those in KwaZulu Natal who went through a hectic, violent time during the 80s and 90s, they, they they shared their experiences, and then those from the DRC and other parts of Africa said, "These are our experiences." It totally transformed the thinking and understanding of one another. So I think it's a very important component that we have to have these courageous conversations. But I think you rightly said say that the there seems to be a lack of political will to do this. Um, and there's a myriad of reasons for that. And uh, so often we found that that um, local councillors, uh, upcoming elections, um, and they, they, they kind of uh, read the emotions of their people, and then they, they, they begin to, to say, well, as you, as you rightfully said, you know, foreign nationals are not a priority. My people are a priority. And, and, and that creates the sort of uh, some of the, 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 the real challenges that we have. So I really think that as South Africans, we need a total re-education of, of our understanding of African history. We don't really understand Africa because of the isolation years uh, during apartheid. And so I also think that that's a very, very key factor, the, the issue of education. And then also, how do we deal with the, the socioeconomic economic justice for all, um, as it were? And, and that's an ongoing thing. I mean, just yesterday, I was in one of the informal settlements. And again, I... The same informal settlement was there in the 1980s, and nothing has changed. So, you know, our politicians aren't even doing things for our local people. And uh, so we, we, we need to 
to, to, to work together on this, I think. And we need to sit down and, as you say, have courageous conversations with, with practical outcomes. But this, this particular report and the study that was, that was done by, uh, by an independent group um, at the time, they pointed out to ways ahead. And then immediately after that, um, the, uh, the, the politicians had, had, had plans in place uh, they had the, 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 the functionaries to carry it out, and it fizzled out. And that's what happens. We have so many reports. We, we have analyzed this. All we need to do is we need to implement it. There's a, a bishop friend of mine who always says, uh, we, we know what to do. We now need to do what we know. You see, and, and that for me is the thing. We don't need any further analysis. We know the problem. We now need to implement what, what some of the solutions are. Yeah. Thank you, Bishop. Uh, Dr. Paul, I mean, the Bishop refers to the political will being perhaps the one missing ingredient. But I'd like to explore that further because my suspicion is that even if the political will might exist, you might find that the political capacity isn't there. We know that historically the former Johannesburg mayor always complained about what he said was a scourge of illegal um, immigration within the country. There are other parts of the um, healthcare system that have also complained about similar issues. And it looks like in some instances, the best intentions notwithstanding, if the government then had to go and say, we are fixing this, they wouldn't know where to start. So a lot of people would say in the townships, suddenly there's far too many foreign-owned shops. But of course, the concept of it going foreign-owned is simply based on me looking at the person behind the till and saying, they don't sound like me, they don't look like me, so therefore it must be a foreign-owned shop. And in the absence of you know data from the states to actually legitimize or, to, uh, or discredit their theory, these are the types of narratives that fester out there. Do we have a problem with political will or political capacity? I agree. There is there is a problem with political will, but however, again, it it becomes a very loaded term when it's convoluted with a complex issue like migration and xenophobia. In this instance, because. There's different competing interests from either side of, 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 of the conversation. Politicians generally have their own interest in managing processes like this, and therefore they are always very suspicious of um, ramifications that may ensue out of their response to a complex situation like this. The, the issue of political risk for them becomes significant. What if the public, for example, sees them uh, supporting the idea of migrant entrepreneurship in the face of growing un unemployment, for instance. So the decision that they would arrive at will be informed by those competing political interests. What do they want to communicate to the public in the face of a pandemic, in the face of uh, job losses, in the face of uh, high levels of unemployment? in the face of um, shrinking economy. Definitely, it's not a conversation that would be in favor of supporting um, um, skills, for example, skills differentiation, skills transfer between migrants and, 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 and uh, their South African hosts in their own communities. So for me, the big issue is that whilst there, there may be implicit political will, to make things work and ensure there is peaceful coexistence so that the economy in general in the country can function because it cannot be uh, well with the economy nationally if there is political instability. 
So the, the bigger issue is they want to maintain political stability so that it's investor-friendly for the country, but also the main, same time manage political risk at the grassroots level, where decision-making is very, very important because they need to make sure that there is no political backlash. And in a country like this, where we, we uh, electoral cycles, electoral cycles are very, very close to each other, the in-between space between the last election and the next one becomes a very tricky space, because majority of that point of time between the last elections and the next one, there is a divergence of of, of um, focus from the electoral promises to other competing issues of national interest. Then these issues of um, electorate uh, supporting political parties always comes sometimes just very close to the elections, sometimes 12 to 18 months to the elections. And that is always the tricky time when we see potential flare-ups of uh, xenophobic tensions. And now the political risk at that time is to say, are they going to maintain peace in the face of electoral promises that were not fulfilled? Or are they going to support a process of peace and encourage coexistence so that there is stability to make sure that elections take place uh, freely and unfair and at the same time not lose their political block? So the political risk becomes the big driver of what might happen that can create a political backlash at the local level. So for me, I see a tension between a national will uh, in, the, in, the case of, uh, uh, in the case of managing um, political stability nationally versus a competing risk or risks, a competing, sorry, competing interests at the local level to manage and mitigate against any political backlash that may look for, for party A or party B to look as if it's not interested in the well-being and the welfare of the local hosts. That, for me, is the tension that needs to be managed. Yeah, those are important insights, uh, uh, Dr. Paul, because, I mean, even yesterday we were reflecting on the fact that last year we had the general election and we're already looking forward to the next cycle of the local government election. So perhaps because our electoral cycle is so compressed, there isn't much time to engage on substantive issues before the politics creeps into it and, of course, um, you know, alter the direction of the discourse. So I think that's a very important point that you're raising here. Bishop, I want to put something to you that is perhaps something a lot of people don't still, still struggle to distinguish between. So a few weeks ago, there was a court judgment that said that the COVID relief fund that the government has put together must also be extended to refugees. And of course, for a lot of South Africans, there was a hysteria of saying, wait a minute, I am a South African, I'm still waiting, I haven't received a response about my application, and yet here's a court directing that the government should take limited resources and give it to a person who's still not a full citizen of the country. And my fear is that there is still a huge level of education that needs to be done on getting people to understand the distinction between refugees, between legal migrants, and the illegal uh, immigration problem that people like him and Mashab have spoken about. But of course, the problem and the consequence is that in the absence of forcing everybody to hold that piece of paper wherever they turn, for a layman, if a person doesn't look like them, doesn't sound like them, they can simply just put them into one bucket. You're a foreigner. You must be illegal until you prove otherwise. How do we deal with that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good point that because I think um, we need to remind, be reminded that uh, you know many South Africans were refugees in other countries and they were getting camps. 
And I know that one of the, the, the gracious policies, and we need to acknowledge that, of the, the South African government was to say that we don't want to put refugees in camps. We want to integrate them into our communities and society, and we want them to have the same protection under the Constitution. And we were welcoming our, our, our African brothers and sisters, as it were. And I think that's, that, that when you speak to local people, I think the one part that we, we missed out on was to actually properly introduce um, people in communities. You know, for instance, I remember in 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 in, uh, in 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 the Mangusi area being involved in when we had a worker from from Mozambique, and it, it, just to use the, uh, the sort of church terminology, we had an evangelist from Mozambique. The first thing we did was introduce him to the local Amakosi. And then everybody knew who he was, you know. So there, there was something of that process that probably was, was needed. And I think a lot of people acknowledged that. So that, that social integration component. The integration component wasn't done very well. You know, people just arrived thinking that, yes, we'd be welcomed by South Africans. And South Africans are saying, hey, who are these people? Who are standing on my doorstep? You know, so I think that, that wasn't done very well, as it were. And uh, and so, you know, today, that's why we're almost catching up now to try and, and, and create better relationships. So that's that's part of the background to this. So the, the, the perception is that that there's not enough resources for everybody in terms of social grants. There is. There's enough for everybody. It's just the mechanisms of, of the, the, tech, the, the technical mechanism that, that is often um, hold-ups where people where things are delayed or there's not uh, information given, etc. So the, 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 the obvious perception that if I haven't received my social grant and I discover that uh, foreign national has... It may not be because it's favoring the foreign national. It's really because there might be a technical problem, you know, as it were. So, so I think the, the issue around education. But I think just to just to add to this, that that the the most vulnerable people at the moment, the refugees are in the system, and and they are often discriminated. They would say they're discriminated by different groups like home affairs, etc. That's the allegations often. Uh, but the, the the most the most vulnerable at the moment, especially under COVID, that we discovered, are the the economic migrants. Where in a way they they're not part of any system, and some of them are undocumented, obviously, and so on. But uh, they come here, and and suddenly they are they, they receive nothing. They're not in any system. And so the uh, you know obviously through through groups like the churches etc we discovered these groups and have wanted to to offer you know at least some kind of uh, safety net of, of passing. But one thing we we've, we've been very clear about is that if we get a list of names from any particular area, we make sure that everybody is included. That we don't just give to to people who are so-called foreign nationals, but we give to everybody in that community. And there's always that danger that even in our responses, that we end up uh, uh, exacerbating the problem uh, by by saying, okay, we 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 we, we see the, the the problem with the foreign nationals, so therefore let's give them free parcels, and then the neighbours see that, and then it creates its problem. So we say to any community leader within the foreign national communities, make a list of everybody in your area so everybody can receive the same kind of uh, relief, uh, especially during COVID-19. 
so, so, so that is something of, of what I think needs to be addressed. Is it, it really is about the, the, the integration, you know, and I think, you know, yeah, sure. Dr. Paul, I think one of the big fears that uh, some of us have um, is and really on, I think, even the economic migrants that um, uh, the bishop just mentioned. These are individuals who exist but don't exist. And when I say they exist but don't exist, we know that they are here. We know that they are amongst us, but they're not documented in the system. And for me, during this particular pandemic, I think one of the great anxieties is that if a person is a person who's here, but their paper not in order, for example, this is a person who's not going to ordinarily approach institutions or agencies or states to say, I need assistance with this. But of course, when we're dealing with a pandemic, everybody who has the type of symptoms that are around a healthcare intervention should be able to go and get that healthcare intervention. But my worry is that far too many people are going to then say, if I do show up then and they ask for this and that and I don't have it, I'm now being exposed to being a person who might be deported back to a place where perhaps, you know, the living conditions are not ideal. I'm a person who may even end up being arrested. But I think the consequences of people in that particular um, you know, space not being able to access healthcare services may just have much bigger implications for the healthcare system at large when you're trying to manage this pandemic. You're correct. Yes, and that's very true. Um, that, again, that's one of the difficulties of managing uh, migration in the country at such a time as this. Uh, because now it's, it's, it moves from <clears throat> from just a, a policy issue to a humanitarian one, where now is the interest of the persons in front of you that needs to be taken care of. And sometimes it becomes very difficult for migrants themselves who know they they are they do not have the right papers to be in the country to be able to uh, even be bold enough to approach um, the state for support. So they rely on their own networks. And when they run out of options, then then it becomes an issue um, uh, that gets now the attention of the world through humanitarian crisis. Uh, having said that, I think one of the difficulties that also um, the government may be experiencing in trying to manage this situation to make sure that there is, on one hand, extending human rights, uh, uh, providing the essential services that need to be accessed by everyone who is on the land in the country versus managing a challenge of irregular migration where people come into the country, do not uh, uh, take opportunities to um, you know, introduce themselves to the state in the sense to be documented in the sense that they are legally in the country. It becomes a challenge and it cannot be solved by either government alone or migrants alone. There has to be a way of, of regularizing migration management in the sense that it makes uh, it easier for migrants who are coming into the country, even though they come in legally, they find a way of getting themselves documented. There has been a lot of um, reports written over the last three or so years since the last xenophobic attack in 2016 about the challenges of migrants even getting their own uh, uh, papers to be, uh, from, from the Department of Home Affairs. And I'm sure that that challenge is still persisting, especially now that there is um, there is a decentralized system where they can go to different centers in the different metros or uh, cities across the country. But still, the process of getting themselves documented is still a challenge for most. And so, some because of the onerous responsibility of that process, they give up in between and decide to stay undocumented. While it may look good in the short to medium term. 
in the long term, it becomes a problem for them, the, 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 the migrants. And then when a pandemic like this comes into play, it complicates the picture because the state can only respond to those they know are in the country legally. The illegal migrants then becomes very difficult for them to access support. And then, then it becomes a problem now. Of course, we've seen um, they try to get avenues uh, of making that plight uh, visible to everybody. And sometimes it comes across as if the government is not playing its part, but it's actually probably is doing by the systemic challenges that make it difficult for irregular migrants to doc- to get themselves documented. So I think for me, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's again another conversation that needs to happen between the government and migrants, organized groups that that uh, that uh, that frontier the plight of the migrants, so that they can be able to communicate this message across through the proper channels uh, of those networks that can reach the migrants at the local level, but at the same time address the systemic challenges with the Department of Home Affairs so that it can become easier and less onerous for migrants to be documented. Mr. Foster, I'm going to take a bit of a quantum leap on the basis of what Dr. Paul just said and say, I hear perhaps there is a case for an amnesty process and that amnesty process is the one that says, Never mind what's happened in the past. If the people are shamed and we need to manage the pandemic, it will be self-defeating for us to pretend that they don't exist. So perhaps an approach that says, whoever you are, wherever you've been, however you ended up here, if you need help, come through, no questions asked. Is that the type of amnesty situation that probably is a, a, a legitimate response in terms of the pandemic? And I think also as a follow-up, after that, I think for me, the reality is that it is pointless to pretend that these instances of people who are here without the right documentation do not exist. They do exist, and pretending that they don't may actually end up with a much bigger spike in the pandemic itself, which is going to be self-defeating. What's your view on that? Well, Kaya, I think that's, that's, uh, that's using imagination in the right way. I think that uh, that's the kind of imagining that we need and graciousness in terms of of saying, yes, let's have an amnesty. We're in a very, very difficult situation, COVID-19. And not only is it in the interests of the, of, the, of the migrants, but it's also in the interests of every South African uh, that, that people, in a sense, are cared for and, and, and so on. So I really think that uh, you know, floating that idea sounds very good. And, uh, you know, perhaps we need to take it even further. And, uh, sorry, just remind me of your second question again. Was uh, I think that, that I was saying that the reason for me thinking I'm just maybe the way to go is that it's pointless for us to pretend that these instances don't exist when the consequence might be 10 or 15 or 20 infected people still going to stay out of the healthcare system and end up infecting others on the basis that there's a fear that when they do approach the yeah. system, they'll be deported and, you know, discovered. Yes, and, and I think I, perhaps yeah, that was my point about it in our own self-interest that people are are brought out as well. So I mean, most people offer, operate out of self-interest, and so if you say to them it's in your interest that uh, that that we, we 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 service and we don't we don't prosecute or send people uh, or or put them in detention camps, whatever the case may be, but that we actually uh, care for them as 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 any other South African. Uh, or any other human being, as it were. I mean, it is very controversial. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that, you know, I mean, you know given the, the attitudes of people that just want to tighten the borders and uh, want, uh, everybody wants illegal um, 
immigrants out. I mean, that's the kind of rhetoric and 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 uh, political posturing of many many groups at the moment to to try and 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 win favour, political favour with with certain uh, groups of, of people, as it were. But I think that um, that is a is 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 a is, is really the kind of imagining, imagination that we need to be using at the moment is, is to think of what is the most just, what is the most um, compassionate and, and um, a way of dealing with everybody in South Africa, including those who are undocumented migrants, as it were. And I know that might sound naive and you know, there's all sorts of complications around that, but at the end of the day, a lot of the these economic migrants are fleeing situations. And that's another issue we have to address is why are people fleeing from their situations? And we need to be addressing the broader uh, uh, injustices that are happening in other parts of, of, of Africa that are causing this this influx. So we have a huge problem that's going to break out in Mozambique quite soon. Uh, already, you know, internally displaced people because of the, the movement of, of uh, what is allegedly ISIS groups that are coming into into northern Mozambique and so on. And we may ha- even have a another influx of of, uh, of refugees from Mozambique. You know, if if, uh, if we don't pay attention to those things. So, so I think that you know we we cannot have this discussion without talking about about the whole of Africa and 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 and, and the broader questions around why is it that that Africa, in a sense, is so wealthy, and yet you know, the people are so poor. You know, those are those are very key questions. And why do people feel that they they are forced to leave their lands and 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 their particular countries to 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 come to places where they think um, it's better? But when they arrive in South Africa, they realise uh, it's not as great as they thought it was going to be. But some of them even say that even under these these conditions, it's even better than being at home. So, so what is unlike, you know, as it were? So, so these are these are really key questions that we have to open up and have some very, very courageous conversations about. And it has to be within the broad African context that we have these conversations. Yeah. So, Paul Karyuki, I mean, the concept of an amnesty for me personally, there is a particular upside to this. And when I talk about the upside, is that the previous Minister of Health, Dr. Arun Motswaledi, in particular, was always at pains to remind us that the problem with illegal um, immigration, for example, is that he couldn't possibly predict the resources that were needed in one province versus the next if he didn't know who was them and the type of, you know. Um, infection or, or diseases that they might have. And I suspect that in this particular instance, again, the government has to deal with the fact that we do have citizens that are undocumented that have fallen between the cracks. And I think that a system of amnesty, for example, will then be at least able to deal with the healthcare question of do we know who's here, do we know what the burden of disease is, so that we can distribute resources in a manner that responds to where the spikes might be. And for me, that is probably the one real upside of a possible amnesty conversation. What's your view on that? I agree with you 100% um, that there is need for us to show compassion uh, and, and in the sense to show our, our extent of humanity. And I think the, the action by the former Minister of Health at the time, uh, Dr. Aaron Mosoledi, was really very, um, very, very uh, encouraging sentiment from coming from the higher level of the government in showing compassion towards migrants in that way, that they can still access healthcare, for example, uh, and be able to, you know, be treated even though 
they may not be here um, uh, lately. And of course, with the recognition of the strain that it puts on the existing resources, because everything needs to be accounted for. Having said that, I think uh, the idea of amnesty should be encouraged in the sense also that it, might, it, it, it accounts on the current realities, economic realities, and the fragility that has come across due to the economic strain on the, on the, on, on, on the government side, but also at the same time also um, a conversation with the broader society that in a, in a time of, uh, of strangeness like this pandemic really is about our compassion and humanity. Uh, I remember at some stage a few months ago when just we were entering um, uh, the lockdown, the first level of lockdown, uh, and the EFF um, um, leader, uh, Mr. Malema, did mention that it's important for government when it's distributing food purses to consider migrants also living in the communities where the, the food purses are being distributed. And uh, he got a flag from the different quarters because the sentiment of compassion had not come in at that level. Yeah, and it was still being seen as a narrative that is us versus them. And why should the government even pay attention to migrants when we are actually facing um, you know, starvation? But it's these kind of things, that the kind of narratives that we need to be con conversing as much as possible and often as possible, because there is a real side of humanity to all these complexities, and no one can exist on their own. So I think it's important to bring in an amnesty conversation in managing and mitigating the different conditions. Uh, and of course, it's not a blanket amnesty. It's for a season. It's a period. Uh, to allow, um, you know, for us to reach out to others uh, in the sense of making sure that they also live. Uh, and of course, while whilst that is all being done, it is not happen It's not a conversation that is happening uh, in isolation. It's a policy conversation to begin with, because it means their resources have to be found elsewhere to be reallocated to meet that kind of a need. And I think that's where the tension can be uh, in terms of the bigger, bro uh, broader intervention scheme of government. Uh, where do they begin? How do they even begin? Where do they get the resources? How do they manage the political backlash? And, you know, uh, and all those kind of things. So it's a policy conversation that still that needs to happen, but at the same time driven by compassion. And I'm, I really must say that the majority of South African hosts have been very, very kind to most of the majority of uh, migrants in their own communities. Look, there's nobody who is isolated from challenges. It could be one time it's, it's African migrants. It could be next time it could be somebody else in another country. And, you know, the acts of compassion go a long way to promote social justice. And even in a way, they heal the, the rifts between migrants and their hosts in their own communities because uh, challenges of this nature do not choose a face, do not choose a nationality, do not choose an ethnic tribe. They face us and they face all of us from a humanitarian point of view. And so therefore, the idea of amnesty then comes in uh, from that point of view and needs to be managed from a poli policy issue, policy angle, and from a political angle with different stakeholders to make it work. Thank you, Dr. Paul Kariuki. Bishop Foster, last word for you. If you had the ability to influence policy tomorrow or the day after, and this policy would be the country's national uh, response, our pandemic influence response to the xenophobia and migration issues, what would be the key points of that policy? Um, yeah, I, 
think a, a key, yeah, I think I think it's uh, the. I think it's twofold. The one is 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 addressing the the economic issue, uh, the to to kind of improve. I, I, you know, it's interesting that uh, the promotion of of local. I mean, local uh, uh, changes of business. In other words, uh, bringing together all the all the local uh, spas and shops and foreign national shops, and they form their own different associations. I think that for me should be a priority, so that they work together uh, in an area. You know, that that's the that's the one thing. The second thing for me is is that we need to introduce. Um, Huge education policies of of uh, within schools, within uh, universities, whatever else. That that it, it, it's almost compulsory that we, we have a, a a education system on 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 the, on the history of Africa and and uh, the great civilizations of Africa and also the recent uh, history of Africa in terms of the conflicts within the broader global context of, of exploitation. So that people can begin to understand why migration happens. And I think that that's really would go a long way in in in, uh, in 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 addressing some of these key issues. So the first is the economic uh, one of being very practical in bringing uh, local micro enterprises together. And the second is is the broader issue of of, uh, of conscientizing and raising awareness of of through through historical education of who we are on this continent as South Africans. Thank you very much, Bishop Foster, and also Dr. Paul Karyukin, Apopolitan. This has been a conversation on Beyond Corona, South Africa and the World After the Pandemic. It is brought to you in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. And of course, these conversations will be going on until we at least find a way to deal with the world as it will be after we survive this particular pandemic. Thank you very much to my guests, and also special thanks to the Conrad Adenauer Foundation for sponsoring this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.